Good afternoon. Welcome back to The Hard Truth. I'm here again with my good friend and colleague, Melanie Inglis, forensic investigator extraordinaire from the country of Canada, I believe. Yes. We've established. We've established. Where it's not all just, you know, hugs and kisses and, and friendliness these days. You're Not you're anymore. in the craziness with the Americans. Thank you. We don't like to be alone in our misery. Well, you're not anymore. Yeah, exactly. This week, we are going to talk about false allegations, which is a, a subject that I'm extremely familiar with, having uh, written a textbook on the subject after working related cases for about 15 years. A uh, textbook I co-authored with my good friend and colleague, Dr. Aurelio Coronado, as well as my co-author on the Rape Investigation Handbook, Detective John Savino from the NYPD Special Victims uh, Unit, or Special Victim Squad, that's the actual real name. Manhattan Special Victim Squad, retired back in the day. And now he works for another law enforcement agency much further south. Um, there's so much to talk about with relating to these subjects. But as usual, Melanie, I'd like to talk, I'd like you to talk about your journey into this subject from both a, uh, as, as, a as a student uh, being taught the issue through the program that we run, and then also through the casework that you've done since that time which I, I think I've seen your journey on this and it's been very interesting because you're, you have a, you have a very particularly valuable perspective, but you are, you're not, uh, you don't, you don't come across the way you think. So I don't want to, I don't, I don't want any spoilers. I want you to spoil. What would the, what would the way you think be? <laughs> well, the way you would think, well, the problem is this, okay. and it is a, a very big problem that many of the people who enter, when you're specifically talking about false allegations, well, let's first define false allegations. What's a false allegation? A false allegation is when you um, report a crime that did not happen or that you report a crime that did happen, but you accuse the wrong person. So you're making some part of your complaint is false, either the whole thing or elements of it and who you're pointing at. And this is very important because Historically, in the 70s and the 80s, there was a big fight to even suggest that false reporting was real. And in the 90s, people lost their jobs. Research wasn't being done on the issue of false reporting because people were blacklisted for even talking about it. And that's because the lobby, the victim lobby, is very powerful in this regard, in the political regard. Not in the investigative regard, but in the political regard. And it was in the 80s and 90s that we started seeing victims advocates working side by side with investigators. And this became an even bigger problem because a lot of investigators wound up having relationships with these advocates. The advocates gain more power. And I don't mean uh, per professional relationships. I mean personal relationships. And so the need was to always make the, the victim's advocates happy or to at least give the appearance of making them happy. They're very good at the theatrical happiness, not the actual happiness. And this is this has led to a, a current climate where... Um, where investigations, and, and, and on top of that, the Me Too movement, which I think is very good, by the way, Me Too is very good, provides a lot of space for conversations that absolutely need to happen. The response of people who are not knowledgeable or uncomfortable with this issue is that now we have a condition in this country, and it's in most of the states I'm working, where an allegation is made by someone, whether it's uh, domestic violence or sexual assault, and the culture is such that no investigation is done. In many of these cases, a detective is not assigned. The statement is just taken. It is documented. No follow-up is done. No attention is paid to the victim aftercare. No interest is placed on collecting evidence or documenting evidence. And the prosecutors will simply just take it to trial based on the statement. 
There's even a resistance to testing physical evidence, even like rape kits, because they don't want the statement to actually be damaged by the evidence or be shown to be inaccurate by the evidence. So that's kind of where we're at. Am I, the reality is I, I keep seeing victims advocates going into court and testifying as experts on subjects they have no knowledge about and vouching for victims. We're going to talk about the, the consequence of that in a, in a, in a recent case, but uh, what I wanted to, what I wanted to do, that, that's the, that's the path that many people take. If they have, any connection, either directly or indirectly, or even tangentially with a victim population, uh, population of people that have been harmed by actual crime, uh, that have suffered actual violence, that there is a tendency to go over the top in the other direction. There's that belief. But that's not the direction you've taken. You've taken a much more, direct, uh, much more uh, comprehensive and objective and truth-seeking approach, which is, I got to be honest, uncommon in my experience. So there you go. That's my... My long-winded setup. <laughs> You're welcome. That was very, very well said. <laughs> oh, thanks. It didn't feel like it, but thank you. you. There was a long roundabout way into not really answering the question, but that's okay. I did. I did answer the question, just not, just not the answer you like. Oh, that's <laughs> as funny. with many of my answers, I, I disappoint so many so often. It's hard to keep track. Well. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so. False allegations. I have, there's casework and then there's personal, right? right? So I guess trying to sum up what you were saying, I came into, yes, it is. I came into the realm of false allegations um, actually being accused over and over and over by law enforcement that I was making false allegations. So this became something that I um, was well, very frustrated with, but I, I couldn't really understand in the beginning because I thought that when someone reaches out, say it is a domestic or a sexual assault, either one of those, which I've had to experience both myself, you reach out to law enforcement and you think they're going to take it seriously. But I was met immediately with hesitation and um, a they were blaming me the entire time, asking me all these um, offside questions about what I was doing, how, you know, like what happened, what did I do to cause this sort of thing? There was never an actual investigation done into what had happened. And they just continued to ask questions, trying to prove that I was lying so that they wouldn't have to do anything about it, which they didn't do anything about it. Anyway, I went through the entire process for, um, the, um, I went to the hospital, I did the sexual assault kit, I did all of that, none of it was tested. And they just continued to come back and tell me that I, I was lying and that they weren't going to pursue anything. So I went through this a bunch of times. And when I say a bunch, I, I, I lost count the amount of times that I've had to, or I've tried to report something, whether it be domestic or, or a sexual assault or something along those lines. And then I got into casework and I realized that this was happening um, more often than not. And then I started to see and feel the problem with the victims and the vul vulnerable demographics on why they don't come forward anymore because they're not believed. And so this began my journey of figuring out what, how do we, how do we even start? Where do we start with this to have people feel safe to come to law enforcement and not be told that they're lying um, and then on the other hand, the people that are using it and they are doing false reports. And this is where at first I would say that I could understand a police perspective because they do see that a lot, but they've become so jaded that the victims, right. they 
they don't see anybody as telling the truth. They immediately put their guard up and think, well, they're, they're lying like everybody else. So it's, it's a, it's a problem in two different, very, um, two different aspects. You're, you're, you're absolutely right. And let me just, let me tell you how law enforcement has, they've tried to address the issue in some, in some cities, for example, in back in uh, 2012 or a little bit earlier than that, NYPD, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, Miami, uh, New Orleans, I'm trying to think there's some couple other big city, big cities out there, Los Angeles, I believe, they made policies that only sex crimes investigators could respond to allegations of sexual assault. And the reason why is because patrol officers were being paid overtime or in cash bonuses for downgrading, downgrading claims of sexual assault. By sergeants were saying, okay, but then we know this because of uh, what happened with Adrian Schoolcraft. Anybody wants that, that information, they can get it. Adrian Schoolcraft in NYPD was a big whistleblower about 10 years ago or a little bit more. And he was, he whistle blew on the, um, the he, he recorded every single meeting he had with every single supervisor, basically telling him, giving them cash bonuses for saying, okay, this is a sexual assault, downgraded to a personal assault or a simple assault, downgraded to something else so that it doesn't go on our rape stats. And we'll give you cash bonuses for that. Or, or you will get, you will get assigned overtime as uh, you will get, you'll get overtime and other people might not based on, it's basically a quota system going the opposite direction in order to create the political perception that there's less sexual assault and that the mayor is doing a good job because their police department is effective. Right. Now, this sounds like a great idea. Take the patrol officers out of it because they're talking victims out of making reports. This is the number one complaint that victims advocates have, and they are right. Uh, women get talked out of making reports all the time by just lazy, stupid, or m cops that are essentially not really interested in working the case, not really interested in being a cop as far as I'm concerned. And they just don't, they don't want to do it or they don't know how to do it. So they'd rather turn it, either ignore it or turn it into something else, especially if it involves a fellow officer or an officer of the court. This well, is the problem because, because it becomes political, right? Right. And that's what I was just going to add to that. In my situation, they tried to talk me out of reporting because it was against a law enforcement officer. So he worked in the court system in family court, uh, preyed on women, uh, mm -hmm. vulnerable women going through terrible court cases in family court. Um, so I was, they said, I don't know, 14th person to complain about him. And they've talked, they talked everyone out of um, filing the report and I went ahead with it. And uh, still they, you know, nothing happened. He slapped on the wrist and he went. And, you're, and you, people would think, oh my God, well, you can just go somewhere else. No, you can't. Not in Canada because Canada is a federated system where all the law enforcement agencies are connected. That's right. So that's the first thing. Second thing is, unless you get a civil attorney who's working to take, willing to take your case, Without payment up front, it can cost between fifteen and twenty thousand dollars to file a lawsuit against the department. Not everybody has those resources. That's so funny. here's the, the clever little thing they came up with in these cities I just mentioned: only a sex crime detective can respond to these cases. Sounds like problem solved, right? No, they didn't have enough sex crimes detectives. So what did they do? They promoted street officers to detective for the sole purposes of making them respond to sexual assault complaints and gave them zero training. And this is. A problem across the board this theatrical response theatrically uh creating a program theatrically not funding it theatrically singing out officers with a new bag just we're gonna paint detective on you and send you out without the training and that's what they did and so this is again the solution is theatrical because the understanding of the problem is not there and the focus is not that the focus is on the crime stats and the image of the department 
-hmm. not on the victim and not on actually finding out what happened. The best way to find out whether or not a case is a false allegation, that's the next question I get most common. How can you tell if it's a false allegation? The police have a very difficult time with this. No, real police don't. Real investigators with real training do not have a problem with this because they are trained and they're knowledgeable and they do their they do the investigation. The real problem is the political problem. When you make an arrest based solely on a statement that you've not investigated, really. That doesn't mean that you haven't maybe checked some information, but you've decided up front whether they're telling the truth. And so you're not going to investigate. You're not going to do anything. You're going to let the cards play as they will. So it's not your fault when it goes south. Or people can't, this is the biggest thing I see, people not doing the investigation because they don't know how and they don't want everyone else to see their shitty work product on display. Mm -hmm. They don't want everyone else to see how inept and incompetent they are so they do nothing and they delay and delay and delay, hoping that the case will get resolved before trial. Um, the other thing that happens is defense attorneys are not given access to the information until the day, day or two before trial. We're working cases right now where we're fighting tooth and nail to get sexual assault kit uh, results, to get sexual assault report results, to get investigative results. To, and we're pointing, we're pointing the state to witnesses that they don't have, or we're demanding cell phone information from everybody so we can know what was going on before and after. And the information they know they're supposed to collect, but they refuse to do it in cases where they think their case is weak. So the problem is political, as usual. The problem is political because it's not about finding out what happened. It's about satisfying the, the current political environment. And so that's your personal journey. Now talk to me about what you've learned as you've been working these cases. We've been, you've worked probably what, uh, five or six false allegation cases now around that, if not, if not more, I, I can't remember. It's probably around that. I, there's one particular one that comes to mind when it, it was a sexual assault uh, and a domestic, and it was, it was a false allegation. Now, going on what you said, they don't do the work, they don't pull the, you know, the text message conversations, the phone calls, all of these things. We finally had access to all of that. And I, I looked through it. There was 4,000 pages of messages that I read through. Cool. Just and, and By the way, I, I believe you're talking about the fireman, right? This is the firefighter. Yes. Yeah. So I want to make this very clear. Very often when we are investigating false allegation cases, the victim is someone that works in works for the government or works in public service or police mm -hmm. officers, firemen, politicians. It's not all, if it's a sexual predator, I mean, obviously that's going to factor into it because right. it's going to factor into whether or not this is true or not. But the, when, when the, what we're seeing is police aren't even investigating it when it, when they're, when there's an advantage to protecting one of their own, they're getting instructions not to do anything, mm -hmm. not to share anything. So apologize, but I wanted to make this very clear because I think people hear that they hear the word rape or sexual assault and they get the wrong picture in their head because they're referencing movies and television. And you need right. to understand that the people being accused are teachers, police officers, firemen, people in yeah. public service. Sometimes this is true and sometimes it's false. And we don't know the answer until we do the investigation. No. And this was to do with, like you said, a firefighter. And then the other party involved was actually from the hospital. She was a nurse. So yeah. They, these were the two individuals that, and they were in a relationship at the time, yep. um, which is another thing I find police don't like to acknowledge because if you're in the relationship, that can't happen. You know, right. there's no such thing as consent in a relationship. You just do what you're supposed to do. Do what you want to do in a relationship. There's no consent problems, right? Right. There's no consent problems. So this becomes another issue on, on its own. But the amount of information we did eventually get and go through, you 
we are able to find those cracks and uh, of where where it's happening. Like, I mean, where who's telling the truth and who's not. And you have to go through loads and loads of information on top of, you know, sexual assault kits, any forensic evidence, anything like that. Uh, video footage. We had a lot of uh, video and audio um, recordings that were. And the truth reveals itself rapidly, does it not? Very quickly. Once you've done the examination, but you have to do, you have to examine the evidence. That's review right. Review the statements, review the social media, review the text messages. They are betting on the police not conducting an investigation because. That's right. Nine out of 10, they don't. So this is what, this is where my frustration lies because we have this party over here, the case that we just explained hoping and knowing that they're not going to do the investigation and that, you know, they'll get away with whatever, whatever their plan was for that false report. But then you have someone who actually is a victim and wanting them to do the investigation to help them. And they don't either way. Well, and one of the, the way that we've started approaching this is very interesting, right? We have taken, uh, we, we work with uh, Dr. Coronado's Institute and agency through a strategic alliance called the Behavioral Sciences Lab. And th that, is, that agency, that, that strategic alliance involves our cases where we focus on uh, vulnerable populations, indige indigenous women, single mothers, people like that who are, who are very vulnerable and don't always have a voice and certainly don't have the resources to hire people like us, which we, we in turn, we do that uh, examination and analysis generally for free or extremely reduced rates, mm -hmm. uh, generally for free. And in that process, we're, we wound up, we were focusing on not just the investigation, but the, the victim themselves, the person who's been harmed and their civil rights and their human rights. And that's been the way to approach this because what we find unilaterally is that law enforcement agencies have the, the law and the policies in place, which mandate that they provide certain level of safety, comfort, care, and follow-up to people who have been the victim of domestic violence and sexual assault. And they make these arrests, inferring that essentially this person is a victim, but then they do nothing. They don't help them at all. Very often, the investigators we work with for the defense agencies are the first people to contact them. And when we have our defense investigators respond to interview or to talk to them or help them out, we have them respond with information they need from the system. They're not getting help from the system. They're not getting people... Uh, they're not getting mental health care. They're not getting uh, evaluate, psychological evaluations. They're not getting um, directions on when their court dates are or what's required of them or the, what's involved in the process. And this is very hidden from them because, the, again, the prosecution does not want anybody touching this statement. And the more professionals that are involved, the more opportunity there is for uh, a bad truth or a bad fact to come out that they are trying very hard to suppress by this tactic. The problem is these cases can take years to go to trial. So for years, you've got this victim suffering in darkness with no contact and no follow-up and no empathy, <laughs> no, no help. And that's the thing that frustrates me the most. Even when I'm working with the defense, the first, if, there's a, if the victim's actually been hurt, especially if they're a child, for example, and some of the cases we've worked on, there's like a complete hands-off policy. We don't want to talk to them. We don't want to tell them. We don't want to help at all. Even if it's somebody who's being, we've had cases where victims have been trafficked by their parents. We've had cases where uh, victims have been sexually assaulted by multiple family members and they're making a false report against a new family member, things like that. So respond mm -hmm. to me a little bit about that because that, that to me is the part that's most frustrating. Well, actually, these are actual victims that have been hurt and traumatized. 
then the state has an obligation to step in and help. That's the that's the benefit of having the state and of having uh, these uh, these agencies and mechanisms in place, right? Well, let me touch on that with the protocol aspect of it, specifically in combination with my personal experience, because the um, the region that I was dealing with, the law enforcement service out of that particular region that I was um, reporting to, they actually had a law that and a, a protocol that they had started because there was a, a victim a few, I, I don't know how many years ago, um, but it was a domestic call and she called the same service that I reported to yep. and they came to the house and they spoke to both parties and they ended up not offering any safety plans or anything to the female who called and they left and not an hour or two went by and they were called back there for a homicide because the husband had killed her. And it was just a couple hours after they were at the house um, because she called because of right. domestic abuse. So this is the same region that I'm calling and I'm dealing with and they don't even want to have an, do an investigation. And I, I believe that they would do that for the general population, maybe depending on the cop. But I also think it's because it was one of their own. They just kind of forgot about that. The man <laughs> that they were supposed kind to. Of, kind of forgot. And well, kind of hoped everybody okay. would forget, right? Yeah, but there, there's nothing. There, There's all these situations that escalate so quickly. And police just, I, I, we're coming down hard on the police right now. But what can we do? Well, here's they, the thing. It's their, being a police <laughs> officer is not a an accident. You have to go through vetting, training, right. uh, you have to make conscious decisions all the time before you can even get into that uniform and get that shield and get that gun. And you're supposed to get training as well. They are by law the only people who can respond to this stuff. They are by law the only people who can right. make interviews and investigations. They are by law the only people that can help in certain contexts. And when so when they don't do it, it's a big problem mm -hmm. because they are by law the ones that can help. That's right. And when I pointed out, they didn't think I knew about this law, even though I did clearly. And I pointed that out to the superiors and then they just started threatening me all the time and um, basically asking me to leave. So I eventually left because there was nothing left for me in that town anyway. And I was scared. Like you couldn't call the cops if anything happened. I, I couldn't rely on anybody anyway. And I'm part of a vulnerable demographic. I'm a single mom. And right? you're not all, you're not the only one who feels that way. That's the important thing. Remember what you said at the beginning. 14 other victims have right. the same experience. Yeah. And they they were all in family court. So we're, you can put together a little bit. There's a similarity between the type of females that they were preying on, because if you're in family court, this can be a custody battle, single moms going through horrible divorces, things like that. That's right. So in this particular situation, that's who he preyed on. And then he was protected by his fellow law enforcement all the way up the train because his father used to be the chief of police. So it just, it just went down, you know, it went down the chain and he was thoroughly protected, probably still is. That's right. Uh, you're not, you're not wrong about any of that. So these are the, so your experience then is essentially with the same frustration. You come in and you Absolutely. see that your, your case is not unique. You're the way your case was handled is not unique. Talk to me about that. Cause that's, that I think has a lot of value for people who this suffer with the same situation. The law enforcement will you, they will on one hand pretend like false reports don't happen when they've got a victim that they like and they're going to trial. On the other hand, they will do everything they can tooth and nail to not investigate a case involving a victim that's saying things they don't like. I, I also think that, oh, 
this is a heavy handed comment, but I also think that a lot of them, not all of them, I'll put that out there right now, but the majority of them, I think that they actually conduct themselves and behave like that most of the time. So they see the reflection and there is, you know, there's a little bit of a mirror for them and they don't want to deal with it. They don't want to have to go internally and think about the things that they do as well, perhaps, or how they conduct themselves. But this was a, I, I thought it was just me, to be honest. Like I thought yeah. that it was handled this way because it was just a situation because he was a cop. That That's what I boiled it down to. And then I got into casework and I realized this is happening all the time. And I will talk to other females um, about what happened with me. And they'll be like, oh, I had a similar situation. But I, you know, I went to report it and no one believed me. This is happening every day. Yeah. And, and by the way, the, the policies on these are very clear. If someone makes a report of a crime, any crime, law enforcement has an obligation to take the complaint and law enforcement has it as a responsibility to investigate. There is no getting around that. So what right. they do is they talk you out of making a written complaint, either by trying to ensure, uh, basically saying there's no evidence and you'll, it'll be terrible for you or they don't believe you. Either way, the message repeatedly is there is no space in our agency for your words, your complaints, or what you're saying, we will not make space for you, whether they, it's direct or indirect. That's right. They brought me in to take a statement. Take a statement. Um, and I sat across from uh, one detective and then he went on for about an hour and they just yelled at me. I should have taped this. They were screaming at me the entire time you're lying. I know all about you. All of these things that I, had, I I couldn't understand where he was coming from. And I kept asking questions like, what are you talking about? Can you clarify? What, what, what do you mean by that? And it, it was three hours of them telling me that I was lying and that I should just back off. When if it, any out. interview that's not recorded by either by audio or, or audio and video is an illegitimate interview. It is it is intended when you're when law enforcement takes you to a space and they talk to you that you're in a place where you're not being recorded. The, the, the intent is to harm you. Yeah. To and then you of your rights. That is, there is no other reason for that kind of room in a law enforcement agency. That's right. That's and true. after three hours, um, I pointed out some of this detective's shortcomings in our conversations and his lack of investigative ability. Um, he basically told me I was on my own and that um, I probably wouldn't survive much longer if I was going to be that difficult. And that was the end of the interview. <laughs> What's fun is this. First of all, that wasn't an interview. That <laughs> well, no. Not at all. Just to make that very clear. And real law enforcement do that. Don't do that. Real law enforcement officers do not do that ever. They're there to help. And they're there to listen. And then they're there to take the information. And they investigate what you say. And that's how they determine whether or not what you say is true or not. They can't determine it in the room based on how you dress or your hairstyle or the way that you're talking. Because trauma impacts different people differently. That's the first part. But the other part is that not just that they have the sole responsibility, but theirs is a, um, the cult, you said it, you said it best. I think their culture is one of creating opportunity. Most of the police officers that we work with that we've seen over and over again, not all of them, but again, most of them have the same problem. They go into law enforcement because they have this desire to abuse their power. Their desire is to use their power and authority to get a benefit of some kind, whether it's shooting people or having power over people, or very often, the power of the ability to stop and detain females that they find attractive. That is a very common problem in law enforcement. So this is not some new situation. So when you're complaining that one of them is doing it, they all have to step in and lockstep and protect that guy because they're doing the same stuff. Not necessarily a sexual assault, but they're 
their idea of sex is I'm a cop. I'm going to create a context, whether it's a cop bar or a, or, a, or a parking ticket or a speeding ticket, a traffic stop of some kind or a domestic violence situation where I can be the savior. I'm going to find context where I have the upper hand against a very vulnerable person. And that is the problem. They, like you say, they see that as a mirror. And their responsibility there is not to think like that. They're supposed to be investigating reports of crime and protecting citizens and property. That's that notion because of the kind of people that are being hired now seems to be in the far rear view mirror. The older guys, the reason the older guys are retiring out at such great rates is not because of, oh, Black Lives Matter. And it's not because of uh, of the, the, the change in culture. No, it's because their fellow officers that they're working with are so toxic. They don't want to be stained with the same stink. You know, that's, that's what I'm saying. I'm seeing a lot of good cops leaving the force because they're being forced by administration to work with a lot of bad cops. And, you know, it's really unfortunate um, for anyone to have to go through any of the situations we're talking about. But I recently um, had to contact law enforcement based on the domestic situation. And the first thought I had was if this cop shows up and he is under 30. Yeah. <laughs> I will not even go forward with talking to them because I've seen how the younger male, white males. Little boys. So many little boys out there with badges and guns. Yeah. They either, they come and they have a conversation and they either give you their phone number or try to hit on you or they go to the other party's residence because they're supposed to go and interview the other person and they side with them because they relate. It's relatable behavior. So they're like, ah, she's crazy, right? Those girls are all crazy. Anyone, so, by the way, anyone who uses that language, oh, she's crazy, that's oh, code for she's just like my ex who exactly. didn't, didn't like the same thing when I did it to her. That's right. And so that was the first thing that, that went through my mind. And then I thought of all the other women that are going through that. They don't even pick up the phone to call for help because they're like, oh, they're not going to believe me or it's going to be some entitled jackass that shows up here and gives me his phone number because, you know, he's taking an opportunity. And this is why we have such a bad picture of what, what, what the nature of false allegations. We don't actually know how many happen. We don't know regionally what's going on. The cases aren't being investigated. It's because of the law enforcement response. The law enforcement, they have a very specific responsibility, a very specific duty of care, and it's simply not being met. Mm -hmm. And this creates problems up front because there's this idea in the general public that transmits to law enforcement that they're supposed to just be able to tell by looking at someone whether or not they're lying. A lot of people believe that that's a possibility and a lot of law enforcement officers believe that they have to meet that responsibility. And it's completely theatrical. If they had one day of real training from a real expert on the subject, not internal training, but a real expert, they would know immediately that they're, what their obligations are with respect to conducting investigations, the kinds of evidence that needs to be collected, the kind of demeanor they're supposed to show with victims of, that involve trauma. But instead... They're using their gut feelings and they're using their own personal experience to guide the language. And that's the other thing. The way that you talk to people will dictate whether or not they trust you, think you're professional, and will want to give you more information. So we're at this place where there is a lot of sexual assault occurring, a lot of sexual harassment, a lot of sexual coercion, and direct sexual assault and rape. All right? But there's, uh, and domestic violence as well, a lot of it. But the law enforcement's response is being dictated by their personal feelings. That's right. Their personal feelings are dictating whether or not an investigation even gets done because they're trying to use that, those personal feelings, to triage whether or not an investigation is getting done. 
And I will say it again. The only way you know whether or not a statement made by a complainant, somebody complaining of a crime, is true or false is through conducting an investigation. A polygraph is not a real thing. Voice stress analysis is not a real thing. Sitting with someone in an interview and believing that you're a human lie detector and, and can tell, oh, their tells, they were touching their face or they were nervous. Or, that's TV and movie stuff. That's not a real thing. And if you believe in that, it indicates you have no real actual training. That but is very a lot of cops not only believe in it, but they also teach it to other cops. Because, right. they, because there's a lot of money in it. Because it's that is extremely dangerous to go in with that kind of ego thinking that you can read someone like that. Everybody is different in every situation. We right. There's no like, like you said, touching your face or something like that. Well, there's multiple reasons someone might be touching their face. It doesn't mean they're lying. They may just be uncomfortable. <laughs> or, or like with me, I have allergies. I have these allergies to mold and pollen, like right now. So I've got my tissue. I've got my thing. And then also we're on, we're live on this, in this situation. It's, it can be nervous for some people. So I have a lot of different, te like tell, I, I drink my water constantly. So you're tell. lying. So I'm lying. So you're yeah. Is you're lying. Yeah. This is my tell. This is my, my tell is all these things. And I'm white. I'm a white guy. So white <laughs> you know white. what? Erase the rest of it. Erase. That's all you need right white, there. White guy. White guy. Trying <laughs> to mansplain false allegations to you. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate it. I've learned a lot today. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Learn to ignore what I say and then, uh, you know, do your own real investigation. And that, that's the key. People do not want to do the investigation, right? They want to no. They want to either be the human lie detector who can tell things without an investigation, like they have psychic powers, or they don't want to investigate because they know exactly where it's going to go. Mm -hmm. They know exactly the damage that it's going to cause. So let's talk about a couple of uh, contexts. There was a really interesting... Um, let me go to share screen here. We'll share this one, right? What do we have? The window, I'm gonna share Chrome tab. Let's see, appeals court. Here we go, this one right here. This is a case that just happened in uh, Colorado and it's pretty interesting because it involved, it, it references two different cases for the same reason. Essentially, you had a uh, two different trials uh, involving a sexual assault where the um, the victim's advocate was called in to testify as an expert. And this often happens. Instead of bringing in real experts, they bring in victim's advocates who testify about the issue of trauma. Now, here's the problem with that. A lot of these people are former victims with no actual psychological training or back. If you put a psychologist on the stand to talk about it, it would be better, but they would be less likely for the court to qualify them. They want to, they want, but they want to bring in victims advocates because they know exactly what they're going to say and they're easy to manipulate and they don't have the training or the science to uh, essentially compete with the prosecutor's narrative that's being pushed. So it's bad on all levels. But the one thing you're not allowed to do as an expert is you're not allowed to vouch for the credibility of any other witness. And by that, I mean, you can't say they're lying and you can't say they're being, that they're honest and you believe them because this is, this is not the province of the expert. All right. It's a very important concept. So the Colorado Supreme Court, the state of the Court of Appeals, they essentially came back and said, OK, we can't do that. We can't uh, we can't have you doing that. You did it in this one advocate did it in multiple cases. And so the case got overturned because she was in there saying, oh, I believe her and I do this and I believe that I believe this. You can't do that. The way that we approach this issue is we look at these are the these are the investigative red flags for false reporting that they show up in a case. And the investigators have an obligation to resolve them. You can have a red flag occur that doesn't actually mean the person is lying. 
but it needs to be investigated. It's a break in the logic that needs to be explained. That's the first part. The second thing we do is we actually say, we're not saying the victim's lying about the rape. We're saying that the physical evidence says this thing that she said could not have happened. That doesn't mean that she's intentionally lying. We're not going to address her being true, her or him being truthful or non-truthful. We're just going to say, this is a, I'll give you an example. I had a case in, uh, in California uh, where I just testified last year, not too long ago. And the case involved an allegation by a woman that a, that a man broke into her home and strangled her and uh, threatened her life, beat her head against the wall. And she also said it was her, it was her ex-husband, just to be very clear. And she also claimed that her hair was all pulled out and it was all over her and all over him and all over the floor. The police get there and she continues this statement. Her hair is fine. She has no injuries to her head whatsoever. There's no hair on her. There's no hair on the floor. And the guy who they caught up with immediately afterwards, he had no hair on him. This element of her story was completely fabricated. And the physical evidence made that clear. Now, that doesn't mean we're saying, oh, she's a liar in general. No, we're just saying on this issue, the physical evidence doesn't support that. So we would need to have another reason why all this had been cleaned up. And she couldn't, she couldn't explain it. In fact, later on, she said, I never said that. It's recorded. You know, it's all, mm -hmm. all, all right there. So what you use is the physical evidence to show that certain events didn't occur. And that the jury can make their own inference about what the intentions of the person who said that story was instead of you getting into it. So that's the way we deal with it. But you're not allowed as an expert to go in there and say a person is lying or, or truthful. You can't say, I have complete faith and confidence in this person. Oh, I have complete faith and confidence in that one. And the prosecutor, by the way, can't do it either. And this happens a lot with prosecutors saying, oh, well, you know, well, you're not a cop or you're not this or you're the cops over here do this. You're saying this. No, well, you're expert vouching. If you're saying that you should believe police because they're police officers and not anyone else because they're not, now you're witness vouching. It's a big problem. Respond to me with you, with you about that. Is that something that you, as, as you're coming along in this, do you see that as, as a problem or do you see it as just sort of a legal issue? Uh, I would see it as a problem. Absolutely. I think um, I was, when you were talking about that, I was thinking about the other case that we worked where there was a false allegation and it was a sexual assault and it was a, just a, a party gone wrong. And then all the reasonings behind why this person, this female made that accusation. Right. Um, we were able to pull through that information and find out, you know, well, somebody found out that wasn't supposed to find out about her um, extracurricular activity that night. And that's why that false allegation came up. But having someone go into the court, like you said, prosecution, I've seen that before where they're like, well, she's or he, she or he is, you know, paints them in this picture of this innocent sort of idea and then sways the judgment of a jury or somebody else, the judge listening to this without even looking at the evidence. It's just they take the story and they run with it because they're, you know, all of these good things the prosecution will say. And that is a huge problem if we're just pushing aside the evidence and not doing investigations, just basing it off something like that. We're just going to continue perpetuating this problem going forward. Absolutely. One of the things um, we need to, we, we have to talk about with respect to false allegations is motives. And we've written about this, or I've written about it extensively, and you've read all the material. Mm -hmm. The material's out there. We have a textbook. It's, again, I mentioned at the beginning, it's uh, called False Allegations. And it's by myself, Dr. Coronado, and John Savino. And a big motivation for false allegations, as you just said, is to essentially explain behavior that you need to be able to get away with, like an unexplained right. absence or a sexual encounter 
that uh, was consensual, but now you either have regret or some other one, someone else has found out about it. So you have to say, oh, uh, well, that was rape. Sorry. Now, the other one is money. There's a lot of money in false allegations in terms of reporting a sexual assault and then suing the property where that occurred. There's a lot of money in that, like millions. That's not, not a small amount. So there's a money motivation. One of the things that recently I've seen it starting to crop up in cases, and this is a this is related to um, the pandemic. We're seeing an uptick in cases involving accusations against employers, and I've started to see a more of a particular kind of uh, of false allegation, um, and that is re religious ones. We, I worked a case this last summer in Oregon where a couple met on Tinder and they had very rough. They organized this idea of what what kind of rough sex, sex they were going to have. The guy came to her place with her roommate there. They went into a room. They had very violent, aggressive sex. Uh, she, he, he left. The roommate, you know, was fine with it. Didn't have any problems. The, the woman didn't have any problems with it. Then a year later, she gets into a new relationship. And she has to explain. She's talking about her sexual history with the guy. And he's Mormon. And they want to get married. And the only way this works is if she's pure. She can't get married. She can't marry into the family unless she's pure. So she said, oh, well, I did have some dates because she met the guy on Tinder. He's like, did you meet anybody else? Well, she did. And she had sex with this one guy and it was all on there. And she goes, well, he, I want you to know I had gone there with the intention of just meeting him and, and sort of having this fantasy maybe kind of come to life. But then he raped me. And he was the one that dragged her to the police station and made her report. In fact, he, and during the interview, the initial intake interview, he's doing most of the talking. So the report comes a year and a half later after she's she's newly deciding that this is a sexual assault and essentially uh, that the motivation is very clear. It's not about a sexual assault at all. It's about her desire to be pure so she can marry into a very wealthy family. And that's a, we're starting yeah. to see that in other States as well. Yeah. Talk to me about that a little bit. I sent you have some thoughts. I was just going to say that she is doing that because she doesn't want to lose the guy for whatever reason you just stated that they're, yeah, there's a lot of money involved. Uh, I find that in my experience, I see a lot of the what we were speaking of before, which is they got caught for doing something that they shouldn't have been doing. Um, I find that I, I think the aspect of guilt, I've seen that, but I, I find it more so in false allegations when a female has stepped outside their relationship and then they got caught. So then they said, but it was rape. Or, you know, I didn't want to do that, but he kept pushing. And then they go ahead. Like you said, a year later, I've seen that. I've seen a year, two, three, when they want to protect whatever image this is that came out. And then they go right into, well, then let's let's arrest this guy. Let's get this guy put away for raping me. And, and, and I want to make this very clear. There are many different men in different levels. Of, whenever there's this power imbalance between males and females, there are men who seek to exploit that power imbalance and seek to engage in coercive practices or even directly with rape, understanding that the person who's financially or emotionally or societally in terms of their, their station, their agency, that they're weaker. Maybe they're an immigrant. Maybe they got an immigrant status or maybe they have, they're, they're impoverished or maybe they uh, don't have a, a good education. For whatever reason, they're the ones with, the, with less power and control of the relationship. So the person who's authority in the in the, the greater power can actually abuse and exploit that person. Mm -hmm. That is a thing that happens. It is also true that people can come into those scenarios and make false reports on either side. And yet this is, goes back to my point. Again, people are looking for a percentage. How often does this happen? It doesn't matter how often it happens. We don't know. 
what we know is until you do the investigation, you won't know whether it happened in this case. But stop trying to use your experience with movies, television, and other cases to decide whether a particular victim is telling the truth. There's a way to know. Find out the facts of the case, find out what evidence there is, and conduct your investigation. One of the most frustrating parts for me about false allegation cases is when detectives or investigators tell me, oh, there's no evidence. It's just a he said, she said case. Really? In the digital age, there's no evidence. Did you look at the No. Did you talk to her friend? Who's her best friend? Did you talk to her? No. Did you talk to his best friend? No. Did you go to the crime scene and process the crime scene? No. No. So there's really no evidence because you didn't fucking look. There's no evidence because you haven't actually done your investigation. The point of an investigation is not to investigate uh, even evidence. It's to find the evidence that needs to be investigated. This is the this is the idea. Law enforcement believes magically if they just sit at their desk and wait, oh, the phone will ring and then they'll go and they'll they'll talk to people mm-hmm. instead of developing the case themselves, instead of developing the evidence themselves, instead of figuring out the relationships themselves. Have you checked their social media? What are they saying on social media? What are you doing there? Tell us about that, because Melanie, I know you're really good at that. We've done it. You and I have done this on many cases. We do a nice little dive on all social media. We even just had a meeting about that. It was uh, last week, right? We had a meeting about the tools we use in social media to investigate people who make allegations and witnesses to see what their relationships are. Talk to me a little bit about that, because that's a big feature that's enforcement seems to not even understand that the internet exists in a lot of places. It's very weird. They pretend on one, in one case, they'll pretend there's no such thing as digital evidence and no such thing as looking at phones. In another case with a suspect they really hate, they'll give you the UFED extractions and they'll get the videos and the text messages, right? Yeah. Makes me not believe any of them at all because they're all lying about in one court, they're saying one thing and another court, they're saying another because of their desire to protect or attack a particular case or defend it. What? What I find with social media and like you said, the the digital age, there's not a lot of he said, she said anymore because all you need to do is dive into their social media. And in the cases we worked when it was indeed a false allegation by the female, they felt that talking about it on social media was to their benefit, but they were actually showing two sides of the story. One that they were telling law enforcement for the investigation and then what actually happened because they post these things on social media thinking that no one's going to see it or understand it. They will do it in forms of meme or passive aggressiveness or long paragraphs of being a victim and this and this, but you, you can see through it. All you have to do is everyone, everyone tells, well, sorry, I don't want to say tells the truth, but you will find things out about a person on their social media that they're not even thinking about, and they post it. And that's not even talking about their messaging apps, their Instagram, oh their, Instagram wow. their Telegram, their Snapchat. By the way, most of the cases I work on these now, we're getting Snapchats. And this is the point and people think, well, I deleted it. Yeah, your phone didn't delete it. You deleted it. It's still in your phone, and it's... This is another thing that I have realized that people don't understand. Everybody thinks that if you delete an image or a post or a conversation from your phone, that it is magically disappeared. It is not. It is still able to be retrieved and read. Thousands and thousands of pages, like I said, in that one um, case that we worked just back and forth. And you could see it. It was very, very blunt and very apparent what was going on in that relationship and how the dynamic shifted, but they had deleted one party deleted it thinking, Oh, well, no one will ever get it. No, nothing goes away. You can always get it. It's all there. This is is a, what I don't understand is 
well, I do kind of, I feel like we're, we're dealing with law enforcement officers who are so accustomed to be able to say whatever they need to say in any environment that they're not going to be checked because they know the courts are going to protect them. They know the courts are going to protect them. They know their bosses are going to protect them. It's the same. What they learn in traffic stops is the problem. They learn that they just can make up laws that they, to tell people they're violating the law to get their permission to search them or get their permission to do whatever, something that they would need permission for. Mm-hmm. So they'll make up a law. They'll just invent it. Sometimes they believe the law exists because they're stupid, or sometimes they just fabricate the law because they know that they're going to get protected or backed up and there's not going to be any consequence to this vulnerable person being told something that they can't fact check in the moment. And this is why it goes so terribly wrong when they pull over someone like me, or they pull over like a lawyer, or they pull over an actual professional. All right. That's why they don't like pulling over professionals, because they don't want to get confronted by an educated person. So it starts there with this inability to tell the truth there. So then when they go into their investigations, now they're just not doing their investigative work. So they'll say things like, oh, we don't do that in this case. In another case, they'll have exactly the same facts and circumstances, and they'll do a detailed dive on social media and phone extractions, and they'll testify. They'll put in an affidavit about, I just read, I have two different cases with the same detective. And in one case, he's saying, oh, well, this is not possible. These extractions are difficult, and you don't have the tools, and we don't have the ability. And in a completely other case, same agency, same detective. He's like, your affiant is well aware of the capabilities of social media and the ability to extract from this particular blah, blah. And I'm looking at this going, you piece of shit. You don't care what you're, what the truth is. You just care about what it is you don't want to do in a given moment. And this is the frustrating part because the tool, what I'm trying to say is the bigger theme is the tools exist. Mm-hmm. And law enforcement agencies are either well aware of it or they're deliberately blinding themselves in given context so that they don't have to do their job for whatever reason, either laziness or they don't want to know, or they don't want to know the truth because the outcome would be bad for somebody that they have a vested interest in protecting. I think it's a little bit of both. I've seen, mm-hmm. I've seen females who are not law enforcement who will want to find out something about somebody and they totally. can find it through one like on Instagram and go all the way back through their entire history. And it's all from one. Uh, any, any particular females you want to mention? <laughs> I don't have the time for that. I know a lot of them <laughs> and they want to find something out. And these are not trained individuals. So when cops say that they're unable to get that information, I call bullshit because I've seen some random just on Instagram going all the way back. It's possible. And it's not that difficult well, once you start navigating through it. You're totally right. But let me let me give law enforcement a break and say this. Most agencies have a policy where the where the, either the officer can't be on social media or is restricted on social media. So most officers who have any brain in their head, they absolutely do not use social media. But But what that that means is they don't know how social media works or digital evidence works. It prevents prevents them from learning. I'm going to go back on the other side of that and say that most of the law enforcement officers that I know have a ghost account. And they have been trained because they've told me this, how to navigate through things like Facebook and Instagram to to look up people and to find people. So they do have these ghost accounts, which are very transparent. If you ever have one following you, not even, not even <laughs> so they do. And some services teach them that. So I'm, I'm sorry. I can't let them have that one. No, you're, you're absolutely right. And I think it's fair also to remind people that law enforcement agencies are not equally distributed or trained no. or, or populated. Some agencies are very good and very professional, and you can really tell the difference. Some agencies are not. 
And so we have to give credit where credit is due. I've seen some really good investigations on these cases. I've seen some real shit ones too. Mm -hmm. So what it means is good investigations are possible. And this is the summary I want to make before we wrap up here. There are a lot of different motives for false allegations. There are a lot of different um, contexts where it can occur, whether it's employment or um, in your personal life or in uh, other contexts. What matters is you cannot tell whether or not a case is a false allegation or a true allegation until you've done your investigation. And this means crime scene, physical evidence, interviews, and then following up on everything, including social media to check the interview statements against what the physical evidence and the social media activity say. And the text and social media activity by that, I mean also text messaging and interview and uh, photos and videos and things like that. It is absolutely vital. So if you're an officer who doesn't have an understanding of that, then you are depriving yourself of all that information. And if you're an officer who's deliberately depriving yourself of that, ask yourself why. Ask yourself why you're not doing an investigation because you have the only sole ability and legal authority to do so and the resources, frankly. Any final thoughts before we wrap up for the, for the week? I just, I, I wish and hope that people see that this is happening and that law enforcement just do your job, do an investigation because it can be very dangerous. If it, if you believe it's a false allegation or you don't, what, whatever you need to do the investigation because somebody's life could be at risk in that situation. If you do not do the investigation and follow up, right? These are dangerous situations that are happening every day. Two, two things about that. One is if it's a real, if it's a false allegation and you believe it's a false allegation, then one, you're dealing with someone who's in crisis. They have a reason for doing that. Maybe you need to find out why. Two, if you let them go, then either you are protecting someone who's probably been doing this a lot or teaching someone that it's okay to do and they're going to keep doing it. Mm -hmm. So you will save yourself the headache of other fuse, of other past false allegations. And you may even actually intervene to stop somebody who's been doing it a lot. These things don't happen in a vacuum. And once a person learns that it's possible to do it and get what they want as a result, they're going to keep doing it as long as there's no consequences. That's right. All right. Thank you so much for joining me this week. It has been always, always a pleasure. And I love our conversations. We should do this again. <laughs> All right. I'll think about it. This has been the hard truth. This will, this cast will be available on Spotify and YouTube and other places where podcasts are available. If you have any questions, as always, please email us. Take care. Have a good week. Mm -hmm.